Misfit Toys. Welcome to episode 653 with my guest, Kat Alvarado. Uh, this is Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, I am not a therapist, so keep that in mind. Put that in your pipe and uh, smoke it, or maybe you're trying to cut back. <laughs> the things you put in your pipe and smoke. I don't know. I don't know what you've been up to. I haven't talked to you in a while. Uh, as I mentioned last week, it, for those of you that live in Southern California, I'm going to be doing a live performance, not a live recording of the podcast, but um, kind of a talk about mental health and and my life story. And I'm going to be doing it Oddly enough, at a comedy club, but it is not going to be a comedy performance. Um, it's something that I'm actually uh, going to videotape and maybe solicit to begin going around uh, speaking. Uh, as uh, well, you don't need to know any more than that. That's that's enough. But um, I may have people sign waivers uh, in case they uh, they get on camera. I haven't decided yet if we're going to get shots of the audience, but I think I would like to incorporate uh, audience participation, whether I'm taking questions or maybe I'll put um, pieces of paper on their tables and uh, ask them to share fears or loves or secrets or something. haven't quite figured it out yet, but um, we released tickets uh, the first week just to people who are on Patreon, and now it's open to anybody. Tickets are $15 with a $5 service charge, and uh, the room is about, uh, as of right now, about a quarter sold out. And it's a tiny room. I think it only seats like 50 people, so I imagine uh, it's going to sell out pretty quick. So if you do want to go, you might want to jump on that. I'll put the link to that in the show notes for this episode, and I'll probably also do a, a little social media blast. I don't know why I use the word blast. What am I trying to sound like I'm in high school? <laughs> That link is going to drop. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey, filled out by a gender-fluid person who calls themselves Cool Fun Guy, 1997. And they write, I use, uh, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? I use my real voice to tell myself affirmations, but I don't really believe them as I'm saying them because the not real voice in my head is telling me, yeah, that shit's true for everybody, but you you little freak. My friend, my friend, I relate. This is uh, also from the Voice in Your Head survey, and this is filled out by Lainey. And uh, she writes, uh, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? The voice in my head is a drill sergeant telling me to suck it up, go forward, keep going. Go until the go spits itself out of me, until I'm a husk of a human marching towards a destination I forgot the name of, I forgot even the shape of. That's a little poem right there, Lainey. Thank you for that. This is from the fear survey filled out by a, <laughs> a woman who uh, calls herself my ADHD vagina. I never realized that a vagina could have a short attention span, but why not? The body is complex. And uh, why should that not apply to the hoo-ha? And uh, I'm actually not sure what uh, 
the pronoun their pronoun is because they identify as female but then uh, they also add half woman half amazing so i don't know what the, the pronoun for that would be i'm going to say she uh share something you fear i am afraid i have love avoidance and love addiction is that even possible yes it is n- not only possible super super common my therapist and i uh, would have this discussion, and Pia Melody breaks this down in her book, Facing Love Addiction, that there is a dance that love addicts slash love avoidance go through where when somebody is unavailable, it's like catnip to us, and so we pursue them. But then when they stop and turn around and say, yes, I am into you, I want to spend time with you, I see you, we retreat because it's such an overwhelming, smothering sometimes skin crawling experience and so that's when you see people getting together and breaking up over and over again a lot of times that's that that's that love avoidance love addiction dance uh she writes sometimes i date and hold off on sex other times i have sex within a month of dating i like sex i think a reasonable interval is three times per week minimal or I'm going to wonder if my lady is interested. I always felt the need to control the desire to be loved and sex. I thought I wouldn't become spoiled and weak if I was always in control. Uh, I disengage from partners when it's good for me to do so. I think about relationships a lot. Does that make me a love addict? I've set boundaries. I leave partners that cheat. I say no if the risk is too high. But sometimes when I wait on someone, It makes me wonder if that is a leftover negative behavior from childhood. My parents left me. I waited and I searched for them till I was tired and gave up. I don't want to think about them and I need therapy so I can focus on what I, in the parentheses or in uh, quotes, have, unquote. Um, You are not alone at all in what you are going through. And it it is a real thing and there is real help for that. Um... So I I want you to know that. And I think getting, uh, if you could find a certified sex addiction therapist, they're they're not always widely available. Um, And and don't let the, the, when somebody talks about sex addiction or love addiction, don't let the term freak you out because deep down inside what it really is is an intimacy disorder, a fear of authenticity, a fear of having needs, a fear of setting boundaries, and thus a feeling often of being totally alone or overwhelmed by somebody else's needs. That's been my experience very, very often. But uh, any comments to make the podcast better? Your next guest should be a sex doll. I will look into that. I will, I will find a couple of stores of curious origin, look at some prices, do a couple of rough interviews. See what I come up with. This is from the Back in Time survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Inner Angry Crybaby. I believe we've read uh, some of her surveys before. Um, if you could go back in time and say something to yourself, when would it be and what would you say? And uh, she writes, the day when I said I love you for the first time to my now husband, I would have said to 25-year-old me, sweetie, you do not love this man. You are using him for sex and companionship and to satisfy your sick emotional need to engage in relationships 
with train wrecks so you can feel superior and needed and secure. Once I said I love you, though, it was on. I couldn't unsay it, and I couldn't stop the speeding train. The more time went by, the harder it was to detach. My fear of abandonment forced him into an engagement and a move he didn't really want to make to another state with me. Um, so I, quote, made him come with me to the new city an hour away, knowing he really didn't want to go because he had an intense fear of change. I said, come on, we'll get our own apartment. It'll be fun. Oh, by the way, I said, setting up the ultimatum that would seal the deal. If we're going to live together, we have to be engaged. This was a warped value I had from a Christian upbringing and a heavy-duty Christian fellowship experience in college. It came in handy in this instance. Did I mention he didn't have a college degree, drank heavily, and still lived with his mother when we met? He was also attractive, good in bed, worked out, drove a cool Jeep, and adored me. During the engagement in the new city, I worked an even better job with an upward career trajectory while he worked odd jobs with no direction or future plans. I didn't care. I didn't push him to find a career. I didn't feel it was important that he have a clue what he was going to do with his life. I would just take care of everything. But every Sunday during our engagement, he would leave me to spend the night back at his mom's an hour away so he could hang out with his friends and drink. Once again, cue my fear of abandonment. I called him in a tearful panic one Sunday and said I would move back to our decrepit, decrepit Rust Belt town after we got married because I couldn't fucking imagine a whole lifetime of my husband sleeping in another city one night a week. It literally never occurred to me to break up with him. I thought this was because I loved him, but I see now it was because I needed him to fulfill my sick emotional needs. I also had been conditioned never to, quote, quit, unquote. And I was a perfectionist who hated being wrong, still do. And breaking up would be admitting a mistake. This is, it's so interesting that this survey just happened to get paired with the one that I read before this because they're, they're so, so similar and perfectionism is such a key component in intimacy struggles. Uh, and <laughs> she writes, why, yes, yes, I am an adult child of an alcoholic and dysfunctional family. How did you guess? You know, it's so funny because it was, I was just thinking the other day when I was driving, I was thinking about how people repeat the pattern of their childhood and they get into relationships that are toxic or abusive and everyone from outside it can see that what they're doing is so unhealthy or insane or whatever you want to call it. And it, and it occurred to me that when we've never experienced true safety, true intimacy, truly being seen for who we are in a, in a safe environment, and not a perfect environment, but a good enough environment, the closest that we can experience, I believe, to intimacy is familiarity. And so that kind of becomes our substitute is that's the closest thing to love that we can put our hand on is this feels familiar. So that must be love. Continuing, after riding a runaway train with no conductor for 20 years of marriage, I hope that was in your vows, by the way. And do you promise to board this speeding train towards a concrete wall? I do. I'm finally facing my deep-rooted codependency and trying to heal the complex PTSD from my childhood. 
We have a child, so I hesitate to say I wish I'd never married him, but this survey is an exercise in fantasy, so yes, I would go back to myself standing in our tiny garage apartment on a sunny Sunday morning and whisper in my ear, don't say I love you, don't board this train, walk out the door and never come back, don't worry about what people at work will say, don't worry that he will be upset, Don't, don't worry that you think you can't live without him. You deserve better. You deserve all the good things. You deserve and will find someone sober and responsible and sexy whom you will love with all your heart and who will be your partner in all areas of life. This guy, he will survive without you, or maybe he won't, but it's not your job to save him. Man, do I love that. And you seem to have such a... Such clarity on the relationship between the life on the outside and all the moving parts and what's going on inside you and and what you, you know, the dance that you've been doing since you were a kid to try to get your needs met. But that, just beautiful. Thank you so much for, for, for filling that out. I just, it's like Christmas to me when somebody fills out a survey that condenses what I set out to do when I started this podcast in in 2011, which was a lot of things, but mostly to to help people not feel so alone and fucked up and broken and hopeless about where they're at because I had been in that place and I can sometimes still be in, in that place and it is fucking lonely. But raising my hand and saying, hey, can you help me? I don't know how to do this, save my life. And I, I consider myself a cheerleader for the professionals out there that are in the trenches uh, doing the therapy and, uh, and, and all the other good stuff. I don't know how I got off on that tangent. Uh, and then the, one more survey before we get to the interview with Kat. Um, this is filled out by, this is a back-in-time survey filled out by Laney. And uh, she writes, I want to go back to the little girl laying on the couch after the shame of sexual molestation seeped into her, set itself into the fabric of her. I would lower myself to her side and tap her on the shoulder. I would tell her she wasn't the the same thing as the shame, that it wasn't hers to take. I would hug her and let her know she could tell her mother and that she didn't have to carry this secret. Or I would go back to the woman I was after my son was born with serious medical issues and I thought my life was completely over. I would hold that woman so close to me, feel her crumble and hold all the pieces, and I would tell her, joy will come again. My consciousness might be disintegrated. Heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. Or with my Barbies. <laughs> the greatest source of our suffering. Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens. Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions. Is very hard to heal and dark isolation. I developed compassion. It is in connection and community where that happens. The process was nearly unbearable. Like, I'm going to have to kill myself. 
We'll be right back after this. <laughs> I'm here with Kat Alvarado. Uh, this is the first time we've met. Your uh, your publicist reached out to me, and uh, I was like, she sounds like a good guest. Well, she does comedy, so you know that there's a hole inside her soul that she's trying to <laughs> fill through the love of strangers. And the, one of the things that I've heard people share who, who come from mixed marriages is is that they feel like they are in between two cultures uh, and and that they don't truly belong to one and or the other, or that they feel judged by, by, um, don't let me put words in your mouth. By, by everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that is absolutely what I felt growing up. Uh, by the way, thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think it's, it's really tough when you're in between two worlds. Um, my family on my dad's side never fully warmed up to my mom. They were never like outwardly mean, o- overtly racist or anything like that. But the difference is, you know, when an aunt from out of town comes down to visit another aunt in the city and she doesn't swing by, even though it's five minutes away, it's those little things over yeah. time that kind of can build on you and make you feel like, well, well what's wrong with us? Yeah. Why not our family too? Um, and on the other side, you know, on that, that's on my white side, on the, on the Latino side, so much of my family is just 3,000 miles away. Back in Nicaragua? Yeah. Uh, and your mom, did she flee the, the, the Civil War? Yes, the Civil and, War in the 80s. In mm-hmm. the 80s, which was a fucking shit show. Oh, yeah. They came here. Um, it was my mom, her sister, who was 16 and pregnant, and her four brothers. Yeah. And um, it, the brothers, of course, came because they didn't want to get drafted into fighting for the Contras or the Sandinistas. They were on neither side. They just want to survive. And and both of those sides were just kind of picking up young men off the street and saying, you're going to fight in our war now. So yeah. naturally, the, the best thing for my family was to flee in any way they could. And um, luckily, they were able to come to the U.S. And so was Daniel Ortega uh, the... He was the guy on the Sandinista side. Right. And yes. so he had taken power. He had taken power. Mm-hmm. And the Contras who were more conservative and, and had previously kind of ran things and were more economically prosperous. Uh, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, but I would say the economic prosperity under the uh, the previous regime was still rather conducive to economic inequality, which is why the Sandinistas came to power. They were communists and allied with Cuba and really sold a lot of people an idea that they would make the world better, which, you know, who doesn't want a better world? Sure. Um, but in practice, they were very brutal themselves. Um, so we just had two very brutal, power-hungry groups of people fighting and then the innocent civilians kind of getting caught up in the mix of it. Uh, I remember you know one story my aunt shared with me, and this is you know trigger warning. This is we're talking about a civil war here, so sure. there's death in it. Um, a group of her friends was driving in a pickup truck on their way to the beach, just as young people do, you know, maybe high, late high school age, and they were pulled over by some Sandinista officers and then shot because they thought they were getting together with the Contras to plan against the government. Wow, that's simple. Um, so to this day, you know, when I post political stuff to my Instagram, and, and especially in the f- last few years when everybody's been very political online, my mom mm-hmm. will have uh, a near meltdown when she sees me say something about Donald Trump. Um, 
what, what if they come after you? What if they come after this family? Don't you understand how serious it is to speak out about the politicians? I say, Mom, we're in the U.S. now. But when I learned these stories, um, everything made sense. I, I imagine it's really hard for someone, let's say, who comes from an Eastern Bloc country, who mm-hmm. comes from East Germany, you know, when it's just wired into you to not even talk to your neighbors about your political opinions, how scary it must be. Oh, yeah. And, and even even now, um, so for those listening who aren't aware, in 2018, uh, Daniel Ortega, who had come back to power in 2004, kind of went from being a a president with ambiguously elected credentials. <laughs> um, I don't know how else to say yes. it. He went from being a president to really being an official dictator. Um, there, he he uh, made some changes to the taxes, and people decided to protest. And during those protests in April 2018, he had his officers shoot into the crowd with snipers. And um, 10 people initially were killed. And then the flood of outrage that came after that from the people um, led to a lot of turbulence and ultimately something around 300 people were killed and hundreds others were hundreds of others were taken in as uh, political prisoners and in the time since then my family has been very awkward to say the least also we can't tell each other what we really think because to share with, say, one of my uncles who is on the side of the dictator, how I feel about the dictator mm. could result in if I go to visit him saying, well, wouldn't it be good for me to get a permit for my business if I turn in this American niece of mine for having done something? So you, you can't even trust your own family in these situations because it's so... What would he Political. turn you in for? Speaking out against Daniel Ortega here could potentially lead to, if I go down there, being detained. Oh, go down there. Yes. I see. No, I thought no. you meant here. I was oh, like, yeah. wow. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no, like, but there. He might he might yeah. get some kind of favor from the authorities down I there. I see. I see. Um, oh, that's scary. Over me. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how often do you visit? I haven't since uh, late 2017. So I, it's been... It, it's been scary and a little bit sad. I've had to make some tough choices with deciding, do I want to speak out about Daniel Ortega and talk about him on my album, um, talk about him on podcasts, which I have. But that decision to do so has come with the consequence of mm-hmm. what's going to happen when I go yeah. back. So I haven't. I've been scared yeah. to do, and, to do and it. And let's plug your album. It's called Off-White, and uh, it's uh, available wherever people listen to to comedy albums, to comedy iTunes, albums. Bandcamp, Spotify, okay. all of the above. Um, so, you know, going back to the feeling like you're between um, two worlds, uh, talk to to somebody, maybe a, a teenager or, you know, a, somebody who feels trapped in that world and has never found a kindred spirit to share how isolated and alone they feel if you were having coffee with them i felt so isolated and alone through i would say middle school and and i remember times where i would just cry and cry and not even know why i was crying but just felt a deep deep sadness that would just come over me 
Why don't I have the friendship connections that other people have? Um, and, and I think sometimes folks will take for granted the connections they have with friends in the same culture. But when you're between two cultures, almost no one shares your weird little mixed hodgepodge culture. So for a young person, I would say the best thing to do is focus on the things that make you happy. I've been hearing the term glimmers a lot. It's mm-hmm. like the opposite of a trigger. It's right. you know the thing that sparks a little joy in you every day. Find those activities and then find the people who share those activities. Your family. I don't mean your blood family. I yeah. mean your soul family. Your soul family. My first time really feeling a sense of belonging came when I joined the track team in high school. Um, and the track team was very diverse. There were a lot of Asian kids, a lot of African-American kids. Um, and then a bunch of miscellaneous other kids. It's Los Angeles. So we've got so many countries I could list. (laughs) Um, but on that team, we were all focused on a common goal of running and doing our best and being sweaty in this hot sunshine. And, um, finally I had a little community around me. Um, and that was the start of feeling better. I loved Mm -hmm. the track team very much. It was my first real sense of a community. And later on, comedy kind of took the mm-hmm. place of that community. Yeah, comedy is a very specific community. But let's go back to the track team. Mm-hmm. Are there snippets or little vignettes that you remember, no matter how small, where you kind of felt your um, something swelling in you that had felt empty before? Yeah. So just for, for a before and after, I remember when being nine years old and throwing a party for my birthday and no one came. Um, oh, so That's painful brutal. for a kid. Yeah. Daniel Ortega came, but that was... <laughs> he came, he shut it down. No, oh. um, no one came to the party. It was just what we, we put up all the balloons and things and I had handed out the invitations at school and, and then no one came to the party. And, um, and there were other parties that then I was not invited to. It was just kind of a total fail on my social aspect as a child. Fast forward to track team. I remember the the first time just getting invited to a fun group thing. Uh, we went to volunteer to put um, flowers on the floats at the Rose Bowl parade um, to, to prepare the floats. It was for the Kiwanis Club. But I mm-hmm. got invited because a bunch of the folks on the track team were also on the Key Club. Gotcha. Um, and I had such a blast. It was such a different, cool experience. And I loved being included because they didn't have to invite me. I wasn't in right. the Key Club. But they're like, of course we're going to invite Kat. We love Kat. And I still hold that memory with me, even though we had to wake up at five in the morning to drive there and put all the stuff on. It was so fun to do something collaborative and creative and just that they remembered me and brought me. Isn't it amazing how how tiny the outward moments can be, how how sublime they can be that, you know, it's not that somebody gives you a new Mercedes or your elected yeah. prom queen, but it's just that, that somebody says, Hey, why don't you come along? We love having you. Yeah. Those things are huge. All the times I've, I've really warmed my heart. have not been big things. It's been little things where, where someone says, yeah, I'm, I'm in, I support you. I, I want to give a shout out to a friend of mine, Yvette Keller. She was an improv team with me something like 10 years ago before I started stand up. And when I announced I was going to record my album, she reached out and said, I'll drive down to San Diego to support your album recording. I said, are you sure? That's that's a four-hour drive. She says, yes, I'm going to make a weekend of it. 
me and all my friends are going to drive. She brought along a group of like eight people, drove all the way down to San Diego to support. And to see her share when I post, hey, the album is out. She's been sharing it and posting it. She doesn't have to do that. She hasn't seen me in person in years. And yet she has. And it warms my heart so much. (laughs) Has there ever been a mean voice in your head that wants to minimize it or explain it away or shit on it? Or do, 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 do you just let it in? I try to just let it in, but it's so weird because there's that, that dark comic side of me, that, that rain cloud, that dark rain <laughs> that's cloud. That's a great way of describing it. That's like, you should quit. It's like this like gross little voice. You they sh- you they have low this. standards. Yeah. No one likes you. Everybody's fake. Everybody's in it for themselves. They feel sorry for you. Mm-hmm. You're just alone in the world and you suck at this. This is all just an ego-driven thing, you ego-riddled person. You're gross and you suck. And like it's, it's that gross, gross voice. And I'll just sink into my, my gross, mean voice, like cloud and be sad and be crying. And then that little gesture from a friend will come in and kind of part the clouds and I'll be like... Oh, yeah. I'm lovable. Thanks for reminding me today. Ah, makes me emotional. My eyes are welling up. (laughs) (laughs) The power of small gestures is so amazing. And what's great about them, too, is that you don't have to wait for someone to do it for you because you can start the chain yourself by being the one to make a small gesture towards someone. So glad you said that. Talk talk about some of the small gestures that that you've done and if you can think think of any you know uh, one one of the things that i it wasn't until i got sober and realized how self-centered i love that i'm interrupting to talk about myself (laughs) saying oh i used to be self-centered but um staying in line for coffee and really loving somebody's shirt and saying hey man what a great shirt and you could just see, you know, maybe somebody that they didn't have a frown on their face necessarily, but they just kind of had a blank look and all of a sudden they kind of light up and you're like, wow, I, I can do things like this every day. And it makes me feel good. Yeah, that is that is so true. I'm trying to think of a specific one because it's sort of a habit you build up over the years. And if you do it enough times, you don't remember specific ones. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say in the workplace, I don't like talking too much about my nine to five, but A big thing I like to do is compliment others on what a great job they're doing. And it really motivates people. You know, I've, I've been people's boss in the past. And, um, and the wild thing is in being that kind of a boss and coworker, they remember, oh, I've got one. So there was one guy, um, at my old work and, um, it was a software company and everyone used to kind of pick on him because he was a little older than the group. We were in marketing and he was over in R&D and he was this guy from the Netherlands. And they'd be like, uh, him. Well, we'll call him David. Uh, David is so weird, right? Oh, look at what he wears. He's such an awkward guy. Uh, David. Yeah, I heard he hits on women who are way too young for him. What a creep. Ugh. Well, I became like friendly with David. I, I would, yeah, how you doing in the coffee room? And I, you know, if, if he got a commendation for, for some good work he did, I would say, hey, congratulations on that. That's really, that's really awesome. Um, so in my reaching out and being friendly, 
hey, then come to my comedy show sometimes. And so I'd get him some free tickets. And it became kind of a, a back and forth of positivity. Nothing creepy, nothing mm-hmm. even roman- remotely romantic, just a platonic friendliness that started with the goodwill of me deciding to be friendly first to the guy everyone called creepy. Right. Fast forward many years, I was laid off from a job. And who came to help? None other than Mr. David to say, hey, uh, I've got some great advice for you. I'm working with uh, another big tech company. And if you take these courses, you're going to be a lot more qualified for a role that will pay you much more money. And I was so grateful for that advice in the moment because I didn't really know what to do with myself. And I think back and it could have been so easy to just be part of the negativity with my mm-hmm. colleagues and dump on David. <laughs> what a weird guy from the Netherlands. Look at his pants. Uh. <laughs> Jogging around in his wooden shoes. <laughs> look at look at his weird little long hair. <laughs> um, yeah, but I chose to be positive instead, not partake in the in the the pile on and and it came back to me many years later. I love it. Mm-hmm. I love it. Um so talk about uh, deciding to get into comedy and, and maybe k- kind of the currency, if any, that comedy played in um, helping you cope as a kid, if it did. I've, I've met very few people that that didn't have to be funny to mm-hmm. survive. Maybe you're one of them. For me, being funny was what I was good at. So... It was a coping strategy in the sense that I had my one thing. I didn't have anything else because, and I talk about this on my album, I was a slow runner. I was on the track team for social reasons, (laughs) not ability. Um, But I was one hell of a performer on stage and in theater, getting cast, not usually in the lead role. I was never an ingenue, but I was one heck of a side character. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Always a memorable tree. No, yeah. <laughs> um, But I was a feather duster in, in Beauty and the Beast and one yeah. heck of a feather duster. Um, and that was my thing where at least I could say, well, I'm good at that. And that's my self-esteem. So it was a coping mechanism in that sense, prior to starting stand-up, when it was just comedy through performance, when I began stand-up, it was a coping mechanism in the form of a channel for my anger. Because as lonely and sad as I was, having no belonging and all the hurt that that caused from my younger years, I had never resolved it. It it had created a resentment of everyone around me. And sometimes you see that in, in some of these like incel things online Mm -hmm. there are people who've been hurt and then it kind of metastasizes and hardens into this anger at the world Mm -hmm. i think around the time i started comedy i had an anger at the world and luckily i did stand up so i could just grab a mic go to a dive bar and say you know what the heck is it with these people who are pissing me off Mm -hmm. um and i had i remember having a lot of rage at, at fellow women i was definitely one of those women who was like Ah, these annoying feminists. I'm not that way now. Right. But in retrospect, I think I was mad at other women for rejecting me. I was mad at those Girl Scouts who didn't invite me to the pool parties and didn't come to mine. I was, I had all this pent up rage and comedy allowed me to channel it and get it out. And the funny thing about art 
is that once you process that emotion, it kind of disappears. Yeah. At the very least, lessens. It lessens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for me, as I got up on a weekly basis doing these open mics and being this rage-filled, I was like a a little tiny Bill Burr, just bitter, 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 angry little comic. Um, I'd say I was like that the first three years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Slowly, all that anger went away. And I remember a distinct time period where my comedy writing shifted. I said, I'm just not angry at anything anymore. What on earth am I going to write about? <laughs> and what'd you find? Um, storytelling. I, I found reflection on myself and the things I've learned and then learning how to take all the little details from my stories and turn those individual details into something humorous. And it took more skill than just getting on stage and being angry, but it made something more beautiful. Um, growing up, were were there any big hits to your soul, not that the things that you've shared, you know, aren't, aren't big, but I mean like specific events that, that might've been traumatizing or, um, really affected you deeply, uh, in some way that, that was difficult to process, difficult to, um, make sense of. Does something in my early 20s count? Does that meet yeah, the criteria? Anytime. Okay. Anytime in your life. Great. So I'd say, you know, early, early life and into teens, it's a lot of little, I had a lot of little traumas, you know, tiny everyday things of being rejected and rejected and not part of it, which just made me a sad kid mm-hmm. into kind of a sad adult. Um, and around when I was 15, my family became very religious. As a, as a response to some trauma we had uh, with a, a family member we love very much becoming uh, deeply addicted to drugs, mm-hmm. uh, cocaine, alcohol. And um, so they started going to church and praying a lot for him that he would get better. And I started going to church as well. And um, we were Pentecostal Christian, just very, very deep into it. Yeah. yeah. They're the people who speak in tongues. Yeah. Um, it's, it's wild. It's intense. <laughs> yeah. And, and so of course, along with that came a lot of purity culture type pressure to wait till marriage, you know, body shame of, you know, cover yourself up because you don't want to cause someone it's else very to... black and white and oh, a lot yeah. of evil and good and mm-hmm. yeah, kind of black and white. A lot of pressure on women to not cause the men to sin, you know, like don't, <laughs> you know, don't dress a certain way because if he sins in his head, then he could go to hell for it. And it's your fault. Wow. <laughs> A lot of that. So I got married at 19 out of the pressure. And um, that went probably as well as it could have for a 19-year-old marriage. Um, Arguably, there was some emotional abuse, definitely isolation from my partner. Like he didn't want to let me see my family. I had to kind of fight for the privilege to see my mom. In in his mind? In his his mind, um, my mom didn't like him. So, no, I don't want you to go see her. Well, what can I do to get you to let me go see her? Well, I want an Xbox because we were young. So mm-hmm. it was dumb shit sure. like that. Sure. <laughs> okay, we'll get an Xbox. I couldn't afford an Xbox, but I was like, well, I need to see my mother. So I guess I'll put that on a credit card then. Um, whatever I could do. I, I was working three jobs um, while going to school full time while he didn't do anything at all. Because somehow he had just gotten enough control of my mind that he could get away with anything. And he used the Bible to control me, too. Um, 
this this whole idea it's called complementarianism but the idea that the the man is hierarchically above the woman in, mm-hmm. in a marriage and i was so bought into it that um i felt like i well i have to submit to my husband that's what god wants so even though things were totally warped i felt that's how it had to be until um i started working a full-time job after leaving college and everyone around me, all these adults who are not religious, or maybe they were, who even knows, but they were adults with more wisdom than me. They'd hear about my day-to-day life. You know, well, how are you doing? Well, I did you know, this and such. And they'd go, oh, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound right. I came home and washed his feet. Yeah. <laughs> right. They're like, um, that's a little weird, cat. <laughs> I started reflecting and, and learning and reading and realized, oh, I'm in an abusive relationship. Oh. And I also, at the same time, was feeling attraction towards a coworker, and it was an attraction I couldn't control. Do you ever just feel turned on by someone, and just them being in the same room? My my cheeks would just get pink, and I you know, just felt my molecules mm-hmm. wake up, and I didn't right. want them to because I was married. And goodness right. gracious, I don't want to feel this way. I'm a good Christian, and it was so upsetting that my body was betraying me. And I remember praying for so many years. Um, I would pray the Our Father, probably from the time I was about eight when I learned it until 22. Every single night, I didn't miss a single night. Our Father who art in heaven, right? And one of those lines is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I just felt so betrayed by God that I was turned on by a man who wasn't my husband. I said, how God, can you hear me pray this every single day and then let me be in this situation and allow my body to do this when you're supposedly omnipotent? Now you're setting me up for failure. I had such a crisis of faith um, that I got got divorced immediately because I didn't want to commit adultery, so I felt like divorce was a better option um, than that. I didn't want to, you know, do the the indignity of cheating on him and putting him through all that. I I know, I'm sure there are very good people out there who who have affairs and things, and mm-hmm. I'm not one to judge. Life is complicated, um, but it was it was a deeply traumatic time to make sense of everything. Um, that my faith didn't turn out to be what I thought. That I had made so many sacrifices of my own pride and my own self-respect in the name of a religion that then didn't do Mm -hmm. what I thought it would do. (laughs) Um, it was, it was rough. I had kind of a, quite a rebellious period for about a year. Boy, you talk about a crisis of, of faith. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it really doesn't get any more textbook than, than that. After, after you, um, got divorced, did Mm -hmm. the way that you, viewed this person and felt around them, not your husband, but the co-worker, mm-hmm. did that change? Did um, it lessen now that they were available or you were available? They still weren't available because to make it worse, the colleague was married gotcha. <laughs> also. So I I um, left that job because I went to grad school after that and um, I did not pursue things further. I did not want to. Did they ever, were they ever aware of your attraction? I think they were, but they were not going to act on it either. Gotcha. I think it was mutual, but also neither one of us wanted to harm anyone in our lives. Yeah. 
And so, the, the attraction did not. I don't think it lessened. That's why I was glad to. Yeah. It didn't lessen, which was why I was glad to leave. Right. Sometimes when you're in that situation, the best thing is just run away. <laughs> and what would you say was the most attractive or what were the most attractive things about that person? Was it uh, that they felt safe, that they saw you, that they were physically attractive? What, what, what was it, do you think? It was being seen and being valued. Yeah. It's a, it's such a powerful feeling when you feel it. It's like Right? It's amazing. It was it was that in the break room he would just say, "God, cat, you are so beautiful." Gosh, you're a trophy. In in retrospect, he might have been sexually harassing me, but <laughs> <laughs> Your legs are from God, cat. <laughs> Wow, that what what an interesting uh what an interesting moment that it's it was kind of in that gray area gray area really or, or, or maybe it was over the line. I don't know. It really was in in, in a, quite a gray area. No one told him it was okay to say those things and arguably it wasn't okay for him to just start saying those things right. at work because um, it definitely did trigger something in me. Um, in that sense, hey, don't do that. That's violating someone's boundaries emotionally. Um, but how could he have known that my my partner at home was completely not seeing me? Because if my partner was at home seeing me and valuing me, then it wouldn't matter if some guy at work was like, hey, you're cute. I'd be like, hey, that's not appropriate. Right. Go away. Instead, he said that, and it was the first time I felt seen in ages. And, and did you say anything? Made a difference. To him? Oh, I was way too shy. You just blushed and fanned yourself? I, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. I was 22. That guy was like 45. <laughs> oh, boy, that... that yeah. Yeah, it's getting more inappropriate uh, the the longer we talk about it. But yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it 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 really speaks to when our soul is thirsty. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, you know, uh, a glass of muddy water seems refreshing. Oh, abs Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah, which I think that speaks a lot to you know, the couples out there. You don't forget to see each other. Just say something positive. Yes. Take that little extra time, just a couple minutes every day to appreciate one another. Because if someone else does and you haven't, yeah. it can rock them. It can it can really rock somebody. Yeah, especially if your partner is somebody that, that has difficulty asking mm -hmm. for things. Um, it, it's certainly great if you can be somebody who has the kind of emotional and verbal acumen to be able to say, hey, I'm feeling lonely. I kind of, I, I crave more affection. I, you know, I find myself fantasizing about you saying just something nice to me, mm -hmm. um, recognizing something about me or the effort I put in or whatever. But I think if, if we don't, we don't need to wait for, for our partner to do that and just the tiniest things, I think especially, I'll speak for myself, but the gestures, um, certainly love the words, but when somebody does something for me, no matter how small, yeah. it's like I feel their, their love and the mean voice in my brain when somebody does something, 
is still pretty quiet. They're like, no, they made the effort. They got out of the house and went to a store and bought you something that says, I listen to you talk about the hobbies that you love. My my girlfriend bought me a a picture of the uh the patent for the original hockey stick from the from the 1800s and that was very early in our relationship and i just felt so seen you know and it almost had nothing to do with the visual aspect of the picture it's just like this thing i have on my wall that says your girlfriend sees you she cares about you mhm it's big it's big I, I remember that that colleague he uh he took me to get tacos. He took me out for lunch. A very small gesture. That's not inappropriate. Um, and he listened to me and asked me questions about college and made me feel like I was an interesting person who knew things and had something to offer. And I couldn't remember the last time my husband had done that. It was tacos, for goodness sakes. Like. Yeah. <laughs> You should pay attention enough to your husband or wife that someone can buy them tacos and it does not rattle the foundation of your marriage. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I like that. Uh, Any other things fuck fuck with you uh, today or from the past kind of emotionally or mentally? You know, what are the what are the struggles, if if any, uh, today? Oh, you know. So many little things, but it's wild how life changes because eventually I made peace with my faith and now that's a place I can go for community. Um, I have a lovely uh, left-leaning church down the street that I go to and everybody's really nice and it's kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, I get to, to go to a perfect little bubble <laughs> where everyone's positive. I'm like, oh, this is a lovely relaxation from the world where everyone le- on social media is mean. A, <laughs> a lot less Old Testament-y. <laughs> yeah, they're just more a bunch of sweet people who yeah. want to do arts and crafts. <laughs> um, uh, and so instead of that crisis of faith, which, oh my goodness, could do a whole entire podcast on that alone. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm a, a woman in her early 30s. And along with that come other fears when will I find a partner? Will I get to have a family? Will I be okay if I don't have a family? What sacrifices come along with having a family? Is that the right choice for me? I've been ba- I've been wrestling a lot with that in, in recent years. Because um, stand-up is something that is very intense. And working towards getting to the next level in that means more touring. It means potentially doing cruise ships and being away for weeks at a time. Can that lifestyle that is supposedly the dream for me be compatible with being a mother? Maybe, maybe not. How many weeks a, row, uh, weeks a year are you on the road now? Um, I would say about like one third. One third of the year. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's been the past. Well, it was definitely 2019 was like that. 2020, 2020 no, 2021, end of 2021. It started to pick up. Um, so I had a fledgling relationship in the middle of 2021, and then all of a sudden September came, and I was doing a show almost every single night, and then I was on the road in Canada. When I came back from Canada, I came back to a breakup conversation. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. And then, oh, I was like, oh my God, do I quit comedy if I want a relationship? Is that the choice I'm going to have to make? And so I go back and forth. Um that's the thing that pulls me into sadness. The fact that I might have to, either way, give up something that means a lot to me. 
Is it giving up comedy or is it giving up having a family? Of course, I have my sister. I have my mother. Um, My sister will have children one day. I'll have nieces and nephews. Um, I have my comedy family as well. Is that enough? I don't know. But also, we can't control everything in life. Maybe it'll have to be enough. (laughs) I mean, isn't isn't that one of the reasons you go to church is to allow something greater than yourself to to bring you comfort in the middle of of that confusion and for me that that's so much of what spirituality is in my belief in a in a higher power isn't that it's this magical thing that's going to give me what i want but will bring me comfort when i'm not getting what i want and to try to find the meaning and the beauty in those moments when i feel like i feel forgotten I feel left behind. I feel not enough. I feel like I've fucked up, that the future is doomed, that, you know, whatever, whatever it is. But in those moments, if I can be present and say, you are a bricklayer, you are not the architect. Mm-hmm. Just try to live a principled life, stay out of the results mm-hmm. and, and look, look for the, look for the beauty. And when you're in pain, connect to other human beings. That's one of the ways that I that I do connect to a, the universe, a higher power, whatever you want to call it. Absolutely. And, and so much of life is a leap of faith. You know, forget whether or not you choose to believe in a higher power, but just day to day, if I lean too much into my own logic, I kind of sink into a dark pit because why would anything good happen? Why? Right. Most of the probabilities are that something bad is going to happen. Right. Um and every day, we kind of just have to take a, a leap that a net will appear. And sometimes, more often than not, that net is love. And that net is community. Everything I've ever done that's gone well, all of my stand-up, every progression in stand-up has been the result of someone who cares about me. A friend deciding that they would help me. Getting my, my record label... Um, contract was through a friend i wasn't sure what to do next in my comedy career i wanted to take the next step and my friend valerie tosi had done an uh, uh an album with blonde medicine and i reached out to her and i said you know i just could you tell me more about your experience and she said she told me and then she also said and i'd love to connect you i think you're so funny and talented and they would probably love to work with you and prior to that phone call I, I had no idea mm-hmm. I how on earth to get in touch with a record label or, or sure. how to make anything happen. I just knew I had my comedy. And then she did it. That sweet gesture, that sense of that community, that love, that's what makes the world go round. It's the glue. <laughs> it really is. Even from the beginning of my comedy career to today, so much of my progress has just been people who think I'm the bee's knees saying, Hey, come to my show. I think you're great. And people go, what's your secret? I don't know. (laughs) People liking me. I guess me being nice and them also being nice. (laughs) Yeah, and I think putting yourself out there. Mm -hmm. um, It it is hard to enlarge our lives, sit in our sofa, thinking about what a piece of shit we are. Yeah. Love is the net. Leap, a net will appear. And you weave that net every single day by showing kindness to others 
Because then someday that kindness will be there to catch you. Anything else you'd like to uh, share? Where, where can people find out more about you? You can uh, find me. I'm mostly on Instagram. Okay. At? At the Cat Alvarado Comedy. C-A-T-A-L-V-A-R-A-D-O. Same uh, thing for Twitter. The Cat Alvarado. Um, I'm also on TikTok. At Cat Alvarado Comedy. Sometimes I'll just put rants on TikTok. Honestly, mm-hmm. I feel like TikTok is a good place for ranting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you can find my album. Uh, again, it's called Off White with a dash off white um and that's on itunes Bandcamp, spotify anywhere albums are found cat thank you so much i really enjoyed meeting you and talking to you thank you what a sweet soul really really enjoyed uh, talking to her um I, i've gotten a few surveys and emails from people who are longing to hear more episodes with uh everyday people people who aren't performers uh, or authors, etc. And and I am keeping that in mind. Uh, just so happens that this uh, clump of interviews uh, that I have banked and that I'm releasing, uh, there happen to be a lot of uh, comedians. That's just kind of how it turned out. Um, so I, I, I am keeping your, your request in mind. I'm going to, I'm going to mention it to the sex doll. Is a sex doll considered an everyday person, or is that considered a special event? It probably depends on the wig on the sex doll, because a lot of times they will skimp on that, and I really find that to be a gross oversight. Let's get into some surveys. This is uh, from a new survey. Thank you so much to the listener who suggested we create a religious abuse slash trauma survey. And um, this is the first one I'm reading from that one. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself a confused dude trying to get better. Uh, Share any negative or traumatic experiences around religion. He writes, I grew up as a pastor's kid and spent 18 years of my life in private Christian, quote, education, unquote. By the way, if you've never heard the episode, uh, which we did live with uh, Murray Valeriano, who grew up as a pastor's kid, Highly, highly recommend that one, man. That was a really, really great episode and some um, beautiful kind of magical moments happened during the live recording of that where an audience member um, kind of, um, well, I won't say anything more. Just listen to it. It's, it's beautiful. And Murray's a great guy. Uh, continuing, uh, in that time, I could write a whole book on my experiences, some highlights of things I heard in that time. Mental health was, a ma- was made up to excuse sin. If you pray harder or have more faith, things will be fine. Liberals are evil. Jesus, and I'm putting that one in my own words because there was a whole bunch of kind of specific political stuff that I, I didn't want to read. I tried to be inclusive even though we do sometimes mention stuff anyway god are you bogging yourself down uh jesus will take away your anxiety if you just pray mother Teresa was in hell because she was catholic and catholics weren't real christians while i'm in high school i once had a hyper religious neighbor ask me to help with chores and proceed to hold me hostage for two hours telling me i was a horrible christian 
for not smiling enough or appearing outwardly happy. Do you think that person had any issues? I was told I was awful for being introverted. I was told being gay, which I wasn't, was an evil spirit that had taken over someone. And I was told that they were afraid I'd shoot up a school one day because I always appeared unhappy. At the end of the tirade, I was told, don't tell your parents. And like a good Christian boy raised to respect your elders, I listened and proceeded to bottle it up for a decade. I would later discover my general solemn demeanor, which was apparently so offensive, was a combination of depression, anxiety, and neurodivergence. Um, how have, have your experiences affected you and how you view that specific religion or organized religion as a whole. It's hard to reconcile all the hate with a supposedly loving God. The phrase, the church slash God didn't hurt you, people did, gets thrown around, but that feels like an unsupportive way to shift blame and ignore that people in your church are unhinged assholes. Religion used to be a safe place for community and friendship, but as my ideals shift more into worldly territory, it's hard to see friends, family, and colleagues start to ostracize you. Side note, making new friends as an adult is fucking hard. Thank you for that. And uh, if you haven't listened to the episode with Yanya, and her name is spelled, I think I'm pronouncing it right, uh, J-N-J-A, Lalich, A-A-L-A-L-I-C-H. She's an expert on cults. And um, I think a lot of what you experienced has overlap with with cults. Um, could be wrong, but that's just my gut instinct. And listen to her episode on this podcast. She is awesome. I had seen her on so many documentaries just breaking down the way um, that that people's souls are crushed and their brains are warped by religiosity and uh, cultish rules and beliefs. I think you'd I think you'd get a lot out of that if you're if you're listening or anybody who's listening. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Nadine. Hello, Nadine, and she writes, Paul, could you have someone on who can address the mother wound? My mother is a doctored therapist, but also so toxic to me that I've spent the last two years estranged from her. My fa father followed her into that and stopped talking to me, so we are collaterally estranged. I wish I had information or resources for healing this wound in me from having toxic-slash-emotionally-absent parents. I am sorry that you are, um, that you have, have, that that's what you experience and that's what you are trying to heal because it is a fucking biggin'. It is a biggin'. And I, I have been dealing with that one in my life. Um, and it's not easy. It's confusing. It is, healing is nonlinear. It's not graceful. Uh, but it is worth the effort. And, um, I think finding a qualified therapist or support group to help guide you would be huge because I couldn't do it on my own. I could not do it on I couldn't even recognize it on my own. I was in support groups for seven years before I was finally able to go, wow, that was fucking wounding and abusive and I need to start uh, getting better. And that's really where where it began. So I really, really encourage you um, 
to to get some help. Sending you sending you love. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey, and this is filled out by Leah. Hold on one second. Thought I might have missed reading something. Uh, and Leah writes uh, to the question, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? I'm constantly vigilant about what needs to be fixed about me. I grew up in the shadow of a mother who was completely absorbed with her wants and needs, which also became my job and my focus. Don't you love the synchronicity of how these surveys just sometimes get organized without my conscious attempt to organize them? Uh, that they're they're just so complementary to to each other. Uh, when I left home, I was acutely aware of the fact that I had no idea who I was or how to be in a world that was not about my mom. To compensate, I studied everything around me and made a note of all the things about me that didn't work in the world. I was an excellent student, and it worked. I figured out how to masquerade as an adjusted human. That would be an awesome t-shirt masquerading as an adjusted human oh my god somebody please make up the graphic for that and send it to me Uh, i was absolutely driven by my inadequacies i applied my brain and relentless work ethic and made a life that looked like something someone would want until i woke up one day 40 plus years into this experiment and realized i still had no idea who i was and what i really wanted I had just become another version of a person that was useful to everyone else, and I couldn't do it anymore. And what a great example of the difference between being of service and allowing yourself to be drained in the fearful attempt to not let people down. Um, The void swallowed me whole and I unraveled. At the bottom of that pit, I once again took out my magnifying glass and started to inspect every corner of who I am to try to understand how I had it so wrong. Once again, it worked. Years of intentionally and mindfully sifting through the debris turned into connection with myself and others. And for the first time, I could say that I knew what self-love was. Then the pandemic came along, and my old defenses and strategies went into overdrive. Now I see that I never retired the inner critic who was always standing guard in case I got too comfortable in my own skin. As I start looking on to 50, I wonder if I will ever just give myself a break and learn to live, or if I will forever be fixing something that may not even be broken. Wow, that is so, that is so profound. And I love that you began connecting with others. Um... Because I think that's so, so important. You know, I think we can attempt to connect with ourselves. Um, Sometimes we just wind up spinning our wheels if if we don't get that perspective of that fellowship of people, those kindred spirits that understand the battle or the wound that that we're, we're trying to deal with. It's so, and that's where I find, and I hate to use this word because a lot of people are like, ah, that's where I find God. The loving part of the universe, whatever you want to call it, I find it through you, through you, you telling me the things that maybe I need to hear or showing me the love that maybe I need to feel. 
And then the good news is, is then we get to see how that's done and do it for somebody else. And the release and feeling of meaning and purpose from that, the receiving and giving of love, it might sound corny, but it's really, to me, it's what life is all about. It's what brings the meaning and the purpose. But thank you for that survey. really like that. These are some loves from uh, our friend Cupcake Bridge Troll. I believe we've read uh, some of their, their loves or their surveys before. And uh, they write, I love how my boyfriend speaks when he's still half asleep. Sort of a soft, heady string of comfort that doesn't make a whole lot of sense but makes me feel so fuzzy and close anyway. I love the idea that he gets it. I love the ideas that he gets and the way his voice changes when he's excited about something. I love watching him love things. For instance, the video game he plays with me despite my being absolutely terrible at them. I love his strength, his softness, his matter-of-factness and his imagination, his toughness and whimsy. I love that I am always discovering new parts of him and I hope I never stop. Oh, that is so beautiful and I love that I love a person who can be tough and, and who can be silly. There's nothing like that. And, and I don't think it's that common. This is a pretty fucking intense shame and secret survey. And I don't normally give out trigger warnings. Um, I, I don't know if this one is, is that much different than a lot of the heavy ones that I read. But I don't know. I just jotted down intense at the, at the top of this one. Um, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Docile Dumpster. She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 30s. She says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, yes, and I never reported it. When I was about three years old, my mom and I had to move into a council house. And uh, in parentheses, not sure what the equivalent is in the U.S. Um, it, those, those would be called projects. And that's what we call them here. Uh, as my parents had split up. I made friends with the two twin boys who lived next door. I guess they were about the same age. They had an older brother who I thought was the coolest person ever. He had a computer and would design cars and motorbikes and print them out for me. I don't really remember the time scale on things because I was so young, but their stepdad would watch us play in the garden, getting muddy, and then tell us we needed to get cleaned up before we could have snacks. He told us to get fully naked in the garden and hosed us down and told us to wash each other. There were many occasions where he would make the brothers touch me and I brothers touch me and have intercourse with me, but I enjoyed the feeling. I remember becoming obsessed with orgasming and would rub myself on my pillow at home. I hate that I enjoyed it, and I hate that it led me to a life obsession with sex from such an early age. Uh, she's never been physically abused, uh, but she's been emotionally abused. She writes, when my dad moved in with his second wife, uh, I guess I was about 10 years old, question mark, she suddenly became very hostile towards me. I remember one time where she leaned, lent, lent, leant, leant me over the top of the stairs and screamed in my face, if you ever talk to me or my family again, I will fucking kill you. Wow. Wow. I didn't think that first part of the survey uh, could be 
could have something more fucked up or as fucked up follow it. Uh, After that, I didn't speak to her or her family again, but still lived in the house. There was an unspoken rule that I would stay in my room. Nobody made eye contact with me, and I had my dinner when everyone had gone to bed around 11.30 p.m. This would be abuse if it was to a dog. Her children, who had been like actual siblings to me before we all moved in together, really copied her behavior. I can't blame them because we were kids and they were just looking for acceptance from their emotionally unstable mother, but my things got broken, my chair and the car would be kicked in uh, when I was in the front seat, and one time I saw that the notice board in the garage that had my that my dad had a couple of photos of me had pins stuck all in my face. Thanks, guys. Ha. My dad did nothing. He wouldn't talk to me unless everyone else was asleep or out of the house. It broke my heart, and I hated him for so long for letting her do that to me. God. Any positive experiences with the abusers? My stepmom was nice to me before we moved in together. I don't know what happened, and I don't really remember specifics. Weirdly enough, every Christmas and holiday, she would give me, not personally, but through my dad, the most lavish and expensive gifts. I don't know why she was trying to put on a front. Probably, probably for herself. Probably had nothing to do with her concern for what you might be feeling. It was probably her way of convincing herself that she wasn't that bad. In the last few years, my dad and I have been going out for dinner nearly every week. It started with me getting really drunk, uh, the only way to actually have a voice with him, and confronting him about the abuse. He started crying when I said, were you just stupid or didn't you care? Because I know you're not stupid. And I said how, and, and he said how sorry he was. I don't think I needed the apology, just to know he now knows how I felt is enough. So now we have a much better relationship. Uh, When we go out, it isn't a duty and we have fun. And I've been texting my step-siblings. They're coming to my wedding in April. Their mom is equivocally (laughs) not invited. Actually, I think that would be unequivocally, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Or maybe I'm being equivocal about that. Or am I being not equivocal? unequivocal about oh god shut up i need to take the mean voice in uh your head survey and read it on this podcast but do we have that much time it could be its own episode darkest thoughts i am disgusted that when you read surveys about underage sexual abuse it turns me on i guess that makes sense though ugh um, I've said it a gazillion times on the podcast. It doesn't, we have no control over what turns us on. The only thing we have control over is what we do with it. Darkest secrets. In primary school, don't know what that is in the U.S., ages 4 through 11, I would teach and play sex games with anybody who would play with me. No actual sex, just touching and grinding and kissing. I feel so ashamed and hate that I did to other children what has thoroughly messed me up. I just didn't know at the time. I don't think I've ever said no to anyone who's even vaguely insinuated they wanted to have sex with me until I got together with my fiance. 
But before that, I was just so desperate for the feeling of being wanted. I cheated on everyone I'd ever been with and been a complete slut until four years ago. I hate thinking about some of the situations I let myself get into. Some of them make me feel sick to my stomach. And I'm just going to throw a little uh, little tough love at you and uh, suggest that you stop calling yourself a slut and uh, look at yourself as somebody who was and is wounded and is trying to grow and trying to find the tools to deal with feelings that are uh, unsurprisingly fucking gigantic and intense and fucking dramatic. What are the sexual fantasies most powerful to you? I want to be choked till I pass out and the guy can carry on and finish inside me without using a condom and leave before I wake up. I don't like knowing that I would get off on that. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would ask my stepmom why she hates me. What could a 10-year-old possibly have done to deserve such cruelty? I never played sex games with my step-siblings, so I have no clue. I can't even imagine what is going on in your stepmom's brain, central nervous system. It's, it is some of the most monstrous shit, in, in addition to the, the, the neighbor uh, that, I, that I've heard on this podcast. What, if anything, do you wish for? To carry on feeling as stable as I've come to feel in the last few years. You are a fucking survivor, man. You are a... Have you shared these things with others? My best friend knows nearly everything about me. We met when we were two super depressed anorexic 16-year-olds and understand each other completely. We still do, but we are both much happier and healthier now. Oh, I love that. Human connection. Big fan. How do you feel after writing these things down? A bit empty, but okay. When I was younger, I would think so hard about all of these things just to make myself more depressed because it was my personality and I was afraid of becoming happy, normal, and boring. I would imagine being happy or expressing happiness in your home if you were ever able to feel that was super fucking unsafe. When I got over the fact that you don't have to dwell negatively on everything um, because it's done, I realized these things don't have to affect me so much. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Today can be better than yesterday. Thank you so much for that survey. These are some more loves from uh, Cupcake Bridge Troll. I love days when my chronic pain is low. God, do I love days when my chronic pain is low. I love taking my meds. It just feels like showing up for myself. And even though I wish I didn't need meds, the fact is that I do, and I love myself for taking them in order to improve my mental health. Thank you for writing that one down because I needed to hear that. I think there is, I think for many of us, there is kind of a feeling of, oh, I don't know, being less than when we take those meds, feeling of being, I don't know what the word is, not weak, but somehow not as good as everybody else. 
Like, like we're walking around on crutches. Even though I know intellectually meds aren't a crutch, they're, it's, it is to, what insulin is to a diabetic. But I love that you, that when you're taking those meds, that you can think that and feel that towards yourself. I'm going to try that. I love sitting in my favorite local coffee shop uh, my friend, with my friend, Ren, and how conversation is constant when we're together, but never, ever feels forced. That is so rare for me. Thank you for those. Love those. This is a happy moment. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself AG. And she writes, Yesterday, while lying around in bed, my boyfriend gave my lower belly fat a few playful pinches. This is the area of my body I am most ashamed of and try to hide. And when I sit in front of the mirror, pinching it, it's always with hateful, guilty, hopeless thoughts running through my head. But I could tell he was simply pinching a part of my body playfully and affectionately without any judgment at all. And that made me feel really happy. I love that. Also, last week I went to see my nieces perform a short dance at their summer day camp. I'm not sure if they knew I was coming, and their faces lit up when they saw me in the audience. Afterwards, they came running off the stage right into my arms, giving me a huge hug and excitedly saying my name. The approval and affection of little kids has a very distinct kind of validation to it. When it's not too weird, I will sometimes run laughing towards my friends when I see them to give them a big hug. I hope it makes them feel as warm and loved as it does when my nieces do that for me. I love that one. Yeah, there is something about just that innocence and that joy. feels like it's so rare as adults that we can just forget about the rent or the mortgage or the fucked up this or the fucked up that to, to just be purely in that moment and and then finally we got a couple more loves from uh, our friend Cupcake Bridge Troll and um, they write I love the smell of sunscreen and tanning lotion yes it always reminds me of my dad and being at the beach uh, as a kid there's like a specific one I don't remember if it was copper tone or which one but it's uh, it, there's such fond memories connected to that. I love tattoos and the inherent middle finger they contain. I love watching someone figure something out, seeing all the internal gears turn through their small facial expressions and eye movements. I love the summer because I really, really love not freezing my fucking ass off all day long. And finally, I love that I feel like I could keep filling this survey out for days straight because there are so many things in this life a life that very often feels too heavy and dark and painful that I just love so fucking much. Those are awesome. Um, thank you to those of you who, who have been signing up uh, as monthly donors for Patreon. Um, I'm very self-conscious about asking for the financial support that, that I need currently. Um, we're experiencing, and I don't want to go into too much detail at this point for legal reasons, but experiencing a gigantic budget shortfall. And I think we have, we have some, some PayPal donors. Most of the donors are via Patreon. I think there's about 500 monthly donors and to even get close 
to breaking even with the costs of the people I pay to help me on the podcast, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and make up for this shortfall. I need about three times. We need about 1,500 donors on Patreon. And um, just imagine if this show was a guitar case and I was in the subway. Would you, would you toss me any money listening for an hour and a half? Um, that's all I ask. And if you're strapped, I totally get it. Take care of yourself. Do what you do what you need to do. Because I know in the end I'll be all I'll be all right. I do believe there is a benevolent force in the universe, and I don't know. Maybe it's it's just adding some weight uh, for my workout. You know, to try to make my stroll my soul stronger, or to get through something that maybe I can help somebody in a similar situation down the line through. I don't know, but uh, I go back and forth between <laughs> despondent terror and uh, and feeling like everything is gonna gonna be okay. But I preach on this podcast: ask for help. I need help. I'm putting it out there. And um, you can also do a one-time donation through Venmo. The Venmo handle is Mental Pod M E N T A L P O D. And again, if finances are tight for you, please. Do not feel guilty. Take care of your own stuff. I know a lot of people are struggling out there. And most importantly, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck and you're thinking that you're alone, you are not. And thanks for listening. And I hope to see some of you at the uh, thing on August 2nd. That link will be in the show notes of this episode. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.